Welcome to Surviving Society. With Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. This is a three-week takeover of the Surviving Society's Alternative to Women's Hour. This series is centred on sexual relationships, abolition, sexual violence, power and feminism. These episodes feature Tina Seeker, Alison Phipps and Nikki godden Razul. All three episodes are centred on the new feminist framework based on Tina Seeker's book Sex, Consent and Justice, as well as Alison, Tina and Nikki's new collective titled Abolition Feminism for Ending Sexual Violence. This is a trigger warning to let you guys know that this episode at times contains conversations and sensitive material that people might find difficult to listen to. Hello everyone, welcome to this third instalment of the Alternative to Women's Hour Takeover with Tina, Alison and now Nikki. So I am still joined in the studio in Newcastle with Tina Seeker who is a reader in technoscience and intersectional justice in the School of Arts and Culture at Newcastle University. Surviving Society alumni, oh Tina's Surviving Society alumni but other Surviving Society alumni, Professor of Sociology Alison Phipps and then for this final episode we are joined by Nikki godden Razul, who is Senior Lecturer in Law here at Newcastle University, is EDI Director in the Law School, um, is Editorial Board Member of Feminist Legal Studies and specialises in sexual violence and restorative justice. This is really exciting because obviously we've had these, this is the third week of this takeover, but bringing Nikki in now, we're going to be talking about this this new collective and um, that you'll have seen in the episode title. And I'm going to start off by introducing the collective with the manifesto that you guys have put together. The collective is led by Alison, Tina and Nikki, and it's called Abolition Feminism for Ending Sexual Violence. This new collective aims to bring together scholars, activists, practitioners and artists across the UK and overseas who are interested in abolition feminism and ending sexual violence. We will do this through activities that will include hosting events, fostering interdisciplinary collaborations both within and outside of academia and sharing our skills and resources to support grassroots groups. In time, we hope to be able to make a positive contribution to the growth of abolition feminism in the UK. We take our definition of abolition feminism from Angela Davis, Gina Dent, Erica Miners and Beth Ritchie as a feminism that is actually focused on ending gender violence in all its forms. This means that ending sexual violence requires an end to state violence, especially the violence of policing and criminal punishment and the violence of borders. Our concept of violence is expansive, spanning interpersonal, community and state violence, as well as the violence of war and occupation and violence against the planet. We are concerned with all kinds of harm and will not try to end one by perpetuating another. This is so sick, by the way. We recognise and respect that abolition feminism has a long history and lineage, especially in black feminist thought and activism. And then it must also be anti-capitalist, anti-racist, decolonial, queer, trans-inclusive and supportive of sex workers' rights. Abolition feminism is co-produced by the local and the global it is in constant progress and may have many different art- articulations in different places and at different times. 
we firmly believe in a feminism that is intersectional and takes into account how subjectivities are relational and multiple. Intersectionality also means understanding how the intersection structures of heteropatriarchy, racial capitalism and colonialism, colonialism make certain people more vulnerable to the violence than others. We aspire to connect gender-based violence with other issues in an intersectionality of struggles. Our collective is focused on learning, on imagining a world without sexual violence and on taking positive steps towards this ultimate goal. We are committed to thought and action which does not advance the interests of some groups at the expense of others. We do not see increased policing, prosecution, imprisonment as a solution to sexual violence. We acknowledge a desperate need for accountability but not to equate state punishment with justice. We do not believe oppressive systems can be reformed and we do believe that liberation and healing must be built from the ground up through transformational acts of care and solidarity. Boom! I think that is one of the best descriptions I have ever read. I, I, knew, I knew it, sorry. I knew, I knew that was straight from the Phipps. That was straight from Phipsy. I knew. Honestly, Alison, you are so good at writing this stuff. I may have been doing it for a long time, but that level of clarity and care and politics, demonstrating the actual act through writing, there's not many people that can do that. And it's just beautiful. It's beautiful to read your writing. Thank you. I'm going to read just this final bit about the people that you cite as well, just quickly. As a new collective, we admire and draw upon the important work of other UK-based groups, such as Abolitionist Futures, Sisters Uncut, and read and resist, as well as international groups such as Alternative Justice in in India, the Feminist Autonomous Centre for Research in Greece and in Sight, Critical Resistance and Survived and Punished in the US. As our collective develops, we hope to be able to work with some, some or perhaps even all of these groups to achieve our common goal. Signed, Nikki, Tina, Alison, boom. <laughs> now Nikki, couldn't I introduce the listeners to you first of all before we talk as a yeah, as a as a collective, just a bit about yourself and how you came to be interested in this work. Um so my work generally has been around looking at alternative legal responses to sexual violence. As a, a lawyer, that's kind of what I've been focusing on, but not specifically from an abolition perspective. Um, so my PhD, which I finished ten years ago now, was looking at alternatives like restorative justice and Uh, using tort law, and that's specifically compensation claims against individuals or institutions um, who can be sued for either being the perpetrators of sexual violence or at least being held vicariously responsible for sexual violence. Um, And then just, you know, having more conversations around the problems about the criminal justice system, and especially when Tina joined Newcastle and we both met through the gender research group here at Newcastle University quite a few years ago now. it's just got me thinking, well, coming to too late to this realisation, really, that I already know the criminal justice system just is absolutely terrible in perpetuating the harms it supposedly is supposed to address. Um, but going, I need to go further than this, just kind of ignoring it and not addressing it at all is is not doing enough. Um, so I really wanted to explore abolition more and bring that more into my work. That's amazing, Nikki, and I always think it's really great when we have scholars like yourself on the show who come to these things having learned, been part of, and taught about these structures to then say, actually, do you know what, fuck this, it needs to go. Like, I think it's always really powerful when you have people, not necessarily that you quote-unquote change your mind, but your direction change, and I think that, that we should always be really embracing of that as scholars, so... And that's one of the 
we really want to do with the collective as well is you know is we, we can kind of see a bit of an opening here I think um because of and Tina can talk more about this really is about the Me Too movement and the Black Lives Matter movement and the disjunctions between them but there's kind of a bit of an opening here to really talk more about abolition and feminism and specifically how we, we can address sexual violence through these these frames. We see this this opening and we want to try and bring people on board and um, people like me who probably would have been critical of the criminal justice system and maybe haven't necessarily been directly engaging in reforms as such, but by not challenging it are still in effect contributing to allowing it to, to be propped up and supported. Amazing. Okay, who's going to come in on what is abolition? You. (laughs) (laughs) Tina, what is abolition? What is abolition? Um, I would say abolition is a move, a a methodology, a, you know, a state of being (laughs) where it's about um, directly undermining and attacking systems of injustice. So it can be in any... Uh, institution that we want to talk about, whether it's government, whether it's justice, whether it's education. It's about finding those institutions and infrastructures that cause harm and seeking not to tinker at the edges and sort of adjust them so they're less harmful, but to say that these systems are not um, helpful, useful anymore, and we need to destroy them and find a different way of relating um, that is, you know, positive for, for more. And it's really understanding what police and prisons are for, isn't it? Yeah. You know, they're not here to keep us safe. They might keep a very small percentage of us safe, but most of us, they don't work for. And actually, they are to keep order. They're to dispose of populations surplus to capitalist requirements. They're to put people away. They're not to reduce harm. And it's also, I think, understanding the difference between crime and harm, isn't it, as well, um, you know, kind of leads you to an abolitionist perspective. And I think maybe that's sort of linked with what you were saying, Nikki, about as a lawyer, you know, your long years of experience working in the criminal punishment system and kind of realising maybe this isn't what it's for. I think that's always been kind of my starting point has been thinking about harm and probably why I haven't as much mm. wanted to look at the criminal justice system and look at different ways of responding to the harms of sexual violence and and that's why restorative justice is so powerful when you actually start from the point of well, what are the harms of sexual violence you just understand that the criminal justice system can't respond to it you know it, it can at the minute only see the harm in a very very narrow way of going it's a violation of sexual autonomy and even it's a very very narrow conception of that even that doesn't reflect what the harms are either if you're looking at it from the perspective of a particular individual who's experienced that and how that relates to their place in the world and how they've related to others as well as the actual harms from from communities and societies that are both you know the cause and consequences of sexual violence so the criminal justice system can't do any of that no i think it's also really disingenuous in the sense of of alison what you're saying around um it being a system that is meant to, it's not its not sort of criminal justice, sort of the system that's meant to continue a, a system of oppression and, and to order people and to sort of fix them into these positions so that they can't um, challenge it. Mm. And it's about finding ways to police people so that the system as it exists can be 
solidified and perpetuated and installed in more and more places and more and more parts of our lives. Mm. And that crimes are defined as the largely the things that challenge those strictures. Yeah. yeah. And some of that's about knowing your history, isn't it, as well? I mean, I think abolition is an exercise in knowing your history. And where did the police come from? They come from colonial law enforcement. They come from slave patrols. They come from controlling working class populations on the streets. Um, and when you understand that and when you understand how certain things emerge as crimes and certain things do not emerge as crimes, um, you start to kind of get to a point where abolition is sort of inevitable, really. And Alison, on that point, like knowing your history, like it re- that really reminds me of when I first read your book, Me Not You. And one of the things that it really helped me deal with is understanding that even the movements, and this isn't about abolition, this is about how I came to be thinking about abolition as a, as a quote unquote solution or moving towards solution, is that thinking about movements like the feminist movement being one that is obviously multifaceted multi-layered but one that contains a history that is demonstrably important when looking at the racialized and classed harms that abolition seeks to um, eradicate abolish and get rid of what I mean by that is I think reading your work was the first time I kind of had to come to terms with the fact that feminist history is not one of constantly making gains it's one of um that's very complicated and one that contains a lot of inequitable outcomes and a lot of harms absolutely yeah and white feminism is at times a very very reactionary force isn't it and you kind of have to and you can't just disclaim that and say that's not feminism it is you know that is part of the history of feminism um, and that is part of the history of that kind of mainstream feminism, which has been so instrumental to racialized oppression and the role of fighting sexual crime in kind of the growth of the prison industrial complex has been actively facilitated by white feminists and white feminism. And like the just the rise of the far right as well. Yes. Um, and the mainstreaming of the far right has been so reliant on, yeah, political whiteness yeah. white feminism like all the stuff that yeah that you've taught me you, you've taught me about Alison I think that that kind of knowing your history is something that we um, we try to do a lot on this show but it does it does make things really complicated I think I think this is where sometimes I do I don't struggle with I don't struggle with abolitionist abolitionist feminism but I it really pushes me in a way that I don't think many theories, movements is able to actually do. One thing I found really useful in reading Allison's book, and I think that it was probably one of the last full books that I read before starting to write, or like just sort of at the beginning, and that idea of the of the conjunctures at which feminism made these these trade offs to yes. yeah. get some of its gains in order to, um, you know, and, and sort of through the most marginalized to the wayside, whether it was going back around voting and slavery, whether it was about, um, you know, women's protection and the state and more carceral and then sort of getting in bed with the um, right wing and mm-hmm. the conservatives. And then now with 
uh, radical feminists and and around trans issues. So, like there are these like trade offs that have been made time and time again that that you know I found really persuasive and sort of helpful in me kind of thinking about and crystallizing a lot of my thought. Mm. It's helpful, but then it's like you're like okay, so who are my people? And I guess. <laughs> What abolition says is your people can be everyone, but everyone has a certain role to play. And I think you were saying in the previous in the previous episode, like thinking about Marion Carver, who says that yeah, we need more of us to play more roles, and that's how we find more of our quote unquote people. But it's hard. It is hard, and I have that conversation with survivors all the time. You know, how can we make it more than us? Um, you know, because survivors are out there fighting this fight, and they are working within these awful systems and kind of trying to make gains as best they can and actually that's almost the conditions in which the gains that they make are going to be partial and they might even be doing more harm than good because what we really need is everybody to get on board with it don't we I mean you must have that experience as well Nikki from some of your kind of history in the Vogue Vogue is violence against women and girls space it is really really hard and one of the questions that's linked to that that just I don't know how you square this circle and it's been conversations that have been you know happening over the last you know 30 40 decades is is so much about the funding isn't it really Mm. and the professionalization of these kind of services in order to secure state funding often um, and that then limits the extent to which these services can be more active and radical Um, and so I think really that's the way I see it, what really has a, a big shaping and influence on, um, you know, the extent to which these, these services and organisations can be part of a more radical movement um, and how they end up being tied to the carceral system. Mm. Um, but how we get, get out of that yeah. <laughs> is, is not an, an easy question. I'm not sure what the answers are. Mm. I was thinking too, just on that point, that, that you can extrapolate that out to even like charities and where, where they develop their own internal logic of making the issue that they're trying to counteract sort of part of their sort of funding mechanism and it's sort of like mm-hmm. okay we have to kind of make it an issue and then that's what sort of leads to um you know like uh charities for for survivors uh, then moving into a space where it becomes trying to get the funding and then it, it getting the funding from institutions that want more carceral solutions. And then, you know, that happens in charities and that happens like yeah. sort of across the board. And so you get stuck. Like, how do you square that circle? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And the requirements of the funders are so specific as well. And, and the performances that the charities or different organizations have to, to meet and the requirements to show that they have... Um, successfully met the objectives of the, of the funder um, and in order to secure more funding is, is so restrictive and really problematic. I wondered if, um, I mean, I think, Nikki, I think you spoke about this in the beginning of the episode, but I wonder if Tina and then Alison, you could maybe talk about how you came to your positions and views on these matters. I have a strange story. It started when I was in middle school, <laughs> when I was, um, I think, no, I was in like maybe in grade nine and I was in a debate and it was on um, death, the death penalty. And there was like me on one side and then there was this other guy that I had a crush on 
who <laughs> who um was defending the um death penalty and I was the one who was saying that no we can't have the death penalty. And he said something like like well what what if I got up and and shot you you wouldn't like you wouldn't want me to be put to death or like your family wouldn't want me to be put to death. And I said something like, well, if you all of a sudden got up, that wouldn't be premeditated. So it wouldn't count. And so I did something like around that. Um, but then um, I started to think about the way that it was put immediately on the people and revenge and around me and that they would have to, um, that they would want that. And I was like, I wouldn't want someone to be put to death because of me. Um, and then it sort of started like in that very small like bit. Um, and I started to do a little bit more research and like just through like high school and stuff. I took I took law and I took like all these other courses and it just sort of developed out of there where where I don't think I don't think past that time I was always a little raising my eyebrow around the criminal justice system. Like something is off here, something isn't gonna work, something is, you know, um, off in, in, in some way. Um, and that trust in the criminal justice system was never there as well. Um, and yeah. That's a much better story than mine. <laughs> well, he sounds nice. It's always nice to meet a guy that's like, what if I shot you? <laughs> Straight there. Straight yeah. there. What if I shot you? Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Tell us more about yourself. Whatever you would like to share about oh, coming well. to I mean... I don't think I was ever a carceral feminist. I just, but I just didn't give it much thought. I mean, probably because I'm a white woman, I didn't grow up having to think about the police very much. You know, white people often don't. Um, so I think I only really came to abolition after a long road in sexual violence activism, which sort of started in 2005, um, and partly because of the failures of my own activism really which was mainly based in institutions so it wasn't carceral but it was very punitive the approach in institutions it was all about naming and shaming excluding and punishing and I was kind of I mean similarly to what you said Tina just thinking this this isn't right you know and it doesn't work and something about it actually feels quite vindictive and I don't really like it um and I think for me it sort of crystallized with that disconnect between me too and Black Lives Matter and kind of watching a lot of my fellow white women say me too and then say black lives matter and then with a straight face advocate for more prisons more police longer sentences harsher sentences and i kind of thought how how can you do that and it was really through writing the book that i wrote to understand that for myself that i became to realize that and i think it is mariam carver that says this as well abolition is sort of inevitable um, I almost wrote myself to that point with a book. So I'm a student of abolition as well, like you, Chantal. I don't, I'm not an expert on it, um, but I feel that I'm sort of in the space now where I can't go anywhere else. Definitely. And I really love both of your examples as well, because I feel like I came to it or came to be thinking this way, not necessarily through reading, but through looking at how other people were managing their them, themselves being survivors within institutions through bureaucracy and uh carceral logics etc and what i mean by that is i um i am myself a survivor but 
I never formalized any kind or went for any kind of complaints process. And I think it's because I saw how differently my experience, yeah, as at the time, I'm not now, but at the time as a working class black woman was being received in comparison to other victims. I could see through my lived experience of growing up as a as a black girl, adolescent, and then as an adult, that when things happened to me, it wasn't taken it not not necessarily it wasn't taken seriously, but it wasn't it wasn't treated with care. And I could I also could see examples, whether it was in the media or even at school or even in university, of people that had a similar racialized and class experience as me actually being punished for um speaking out and i i could see that this isn't something that i this is something that i've experienced but i don't feel like if i engage in the process of trying to get some sort of quote-unquote justice that it's going to be equitable and also what what who's going to help me like what does that look what does help look like and then i remember having a conversation with you alison and you talking about like student staff relationships and like when students no when when staff become quote-unquote punished and get moved they get moved out of the they get moved out of the institution or they get moved to departments or they get moved outside of academia into where we're moving them to like who are we moving them to be around so the combination of yeah my own lived experience of basically rejecting a complaints procedure and just kind of dealing it with it myself but then also seeing I didn't understand why some people were able to get just well quote unquote justice that involved removing people and removing but moving them on. Um and I think that abolition, yeah, does really help with all these tensions. I don't know if I just said just made sense quite a few things at once, but um yeah. And that thing in academia that past the harasser thing where, you know, you get rid of, you know, an academic that's perpetrated harassment and then he goes and starts a job somewhere else and does the exact same thing i mean that's not justice that's outsourcing yeah isn't it yeah you know um and that was my question about that i don't you know i'm happy for harassers to lose their jobs that's fine but where do they go mm. you know where will they end up um so it's it's not sustainable is it it's not a kind of it's not a solution to the yeah. problem yeah. and i it, even reflecting on it like um like personal experience of like taking examples like being cornered in a workplace I remember like years and years ago and it didn't even cross my mind to make a complaint Mm -hmm. like it was just like like that is just not going to turn out well um on on any level I would be blamed by their friends I would be you know where like what about my job would you know and then you know this would um you know create an entire sort of gossip sort of that that it was just like no i'm just going to try to avoid this person so it became on me to to make that and so it was that that it was that inbuilt that these these mechanisms of of whatever justice um were just not sufficient or not going to work mm-hmm. um yeah but it is interesting how we just know no, I'm not going to complain. Like, I, I tell, I tell very set people what happened. Like, oh, aren't you going to complain? Are you going to complain? I'm like, for what? Yeah. Like, what do I get out of this? But then at the same time, the tension is, what about other victims or and then become survivors? Like, am I not playing my role? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. this is. But, the... but then it becomes also, um, then a, a sort of whisper network 
starts to develop and and yeah yeah, that that you start to get that you know that is a person where if someone else is hired I will make sure that they know that and it's sort of this interesting thing that goes on it's that you know there are ways just by necessity and out of survival you know that there are sort of these feminist practices that develop to create these mechanisms of care that I think are really interesting it's it's you know, unfortunate that they are required, but, um, you know, they make a move to something, an alternative. We explored it a little bit in the beginning, the relationship between feminism and abolition and thinking about white feminism. How can we relate these or what, how do these intersect with race, prisons and policing? White feminism can't really see outside the carceral imaginary I think that's a big problem and I think that's because as white women we see the police as protection we don't see the police as oppression whereas if you come from a differently racialized group you you normally have a different understanding of that um, and I, I so I think that because of that white feminism has caught, sort of limited itself to appealing to the state for protection and not allowed itself actually to develop an imagination around anything else um, and within institutions as well it's kind of calling the manager rather than thinking about other ways to deal with problems and I think that going back to what you said Chantal about protecting other potential victims that's really important because I think that is one of the big questions for abolition like um, how do we make sure that somebody doesn't perpetrate harm again um, how do we kind of meaningfully hold them accountable? And that if if we pass the harasser in higher education or in other industries, then that doesn't accomplish that. I mean, the only way to accomplish that is through locking somebody up. But actually, in an abolitionist world, you wouldn't need to do that because immediately the community would come into action and would intervene and say, pack it in, stop it. You know, what would have happened was even with somebody like Harvey Weinstein, if the minute he had perpetrated his first assault, if the woman had been believed and if the people around both of them had moved in to support her and to say to him, look, you can't do this. You know, you need to knock this off. What do you need to help you knock this off? We're going to do that for you. So I think that that's, that's what abolition is. It's not about kind of tearing down the prison straight away it's about building a world where we don't need them you know it's about building a different way of both preventing harm and responding to harm and I think that's what white feminism can't understand because it's so embedded in those existing systems I've got a provocation on white feminism okay so there will be people that are listening to this show now that do broadly agree with the premise of white feminism but perhaps the way we see how white, quote-unquote, white feminism evolves or becomes even more embedded in castral logics with all, with all this stuff is by thinking about it in terms of liberal feminism. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is women of colour and will engage in things that we talk about in terms of white feminism you need to have complicity within that and you need to have... You need a collaboration that is multiracial, that is multiclassed. Mm. Um, so I don't, that's not me trying to let off women that are racialized as white. Um, on, <laughs> I don't mean trying me, me to let them off. It's more thinking about um, racial capitalism. It's thinking about um, class, but it's also thinking about how 
is it actually like a is it more of like a liberalism that can it that and 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 also the provocation as well is thinking about um how people of color will can and have always engaged in conservative ways of thinking about gender about sex about violence and sort of and speaking on that and thinking about that is i i don't think that we can just talk about white feminism and how it um how it reproduces these things and i'm I'm obviously not the first person to have that kind of provocation but i do think it is important well, look at the government. I exactly. Mean, <laughs> like, just our own government, government yeah. and how many people of colour and black people are yeah, in exactly. in our government. I mean, I think I, I, yeah, I think you could be right about this. I've sort of gone back and forth because in the book I talk about political whiteness, which is not about skin colour, it's not about identity, it's about your relationship to white supremacy. Um, and I think there is something about whiteness which is quite specific in that. It's also about class, mm-hmm. but in the carceral incarnation of white feminism, it's very much about how race has been constructed through an idea of the white woman as victimized and an idea of the person of color and especially the black man as threatening. Um, so I think there is something about whiteness there, but you could you could call it liberal feminism. I mean, it, it sort of is liberal feminism, but then when it gets to its more reactionary forms, it's not, and it becomes more kind of coherent with white nationalism in that way. And I'm thinking about the kind of gender critical feminists and how much they have dovetailed with the far right, both ideologically and also practically. So I kind of think, well, maybe I do still want to say white. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. No, 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 I yeah. agree. And I think we do, I think we do need it. Mm-hmm. But I also think that we, like... I'm just talking about myself as a black woman now, have to have a conversation within our um, global black diasporas about our own complicity in reproducing some of the harms that are perpetuated and emboldened by that of white yes. feminism. Yes. Um, it's a really difficult thing because obviously we have to think about power yes. and um, and the relationship to structures that you were just talking about. Yeah, and getting a black woman on the Supreme Court is not going to make any difference. Exactly. You know, exactly. absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, just, just on the issue of liberalism in terms of um, white feminism's sort of focus on individual liberties and sort of, you know, like getting the right to vote mm-hmm. and then being able to, you know, that, that you know, to, to work within institutions and to gain positions and to get promotions and to, you know, get um, equality within the workplace. Like, it's very sort of individualistic and very neoliberal. Um, and that uh, feminism needs a much more collaborative kind of ethic behind it, which I think is lost in a lot of white feminism. And so I think that that's where uh, liberal feminism sort of comes in mm. because I think that it's not only it's not only sort of an ideological decision that is made but it's also one that has a lot of institutional ramifications because then it doesn't attend to any of the other intersections it's only um, you know for a particular group of women that that sort of get you know some movement in in social structures and so I don't I think that that is helpful to the system as it exists because it's sort of like, we'll make these small accommodations and then the people with some power, the women with some power will be happy 
and then no one else sort of is is brought in. Opportunity domination. Yeah, that's what Nancy Fraser yeah. called it. Yeah, I think that as well. You you mentioned the gender criticals, um, Alison. Thinking about yeah, the the TERFs, the trans exclusionary radical feminisms. They need black and people of colour TERFs in order to fulfill their agenda and you can't understand the TERFs without understanding the far right so I do think that we're in a really interesting well not it's, it's, it's very scary obviously time um, for our trans um, siblings but I do think that the the political whiteness um, framework and concept is so so useful Alison and I use it all the time it really really helps especially when trying to understand why things are the way that, why things are the way they are intimately and structurally particularly with my own relationship with um, white women um, and how I can't always get them to see the feminism that I want them to see. But also, I do think that that liberalism is really important to to reconcile with and grapple with when thinking about these people that are wanting to cause harm to people that are marginalised by their gender. Yeah. Can we talk about limit cases? Nikki, can you talk about limit cases? What about the okay, rapists? I have, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the limit cases questions is so infuriating for yeah. so many reasons. Okay, so go for one. Okay, is, so what do we mean by limit cases first? Okay, so limit by limit cases, we mean what people see as, you know, individual people who cause extreme kinds of harm, so murderers or, or rapists or whatever, and, and specifically individualising them as what we do as this particular one individual who causes a particular harm to one person. Um, well... First, if we look at the criminal justice system and how it's dealing with rape, does it actually punish most rapists? No. And is it going to? No. So even if you look at it very narrowly on its own terms, or at least on feminists who engage with the criminal justice system's terms, it doesn't do that. It's, it's, asking, the wrong, it's asking the wrong questions. Um, because what we'd hope if you're, you, know, you take an abolition perspective and you're trying to find transformative justice and restorative justice approaches and building these kinds up, these kinds of responses up, or, you know, what um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore talked about, about life-affirming institutions and building those up, then we should, as, as we progress towards what we hope is a more abolition future, well, our understandings, understandings of what's possible and what works and what doesn't in responding to harm becomes clearer. And if abolition is working, then we should have less sexual violence. We should have less of these types of harms because the root causes of these kinds of harms of racialized structures and gendered relations that are so harmful are being deconstructed and addressed. So we don't need to ask the limit case question now as such because at the minute we know what happens or what doesn't happen. The criminal justice system tries supposedly to punish people and, and, and barely does. But as we move forward, then we'll get more ideas and have a better idea of what we should do. I always find it quite interesting as well when people ask about those limit cases because they're using these very rare, very violent, very extreme cases to justify this massive everyday violence of these death-making institutions. And it's, you know, it just seems to me oftentimes it's it's quite disingenuous as well, isn't it? Um, because they've they've no intention of divesting from these death-making institutions like no one makes public policy on extreme cases like that's just the worst way to approach you know making any sort of system or any collection of decision making like you just don't 
you know, it's not a good way to, to do that. And I think that um, you also have to really think closely about how the way that the criminal justice system so-called is constructed um, is like Nikki said, not doing what it is purportedly supposed to do that um, it also is constructed on an idea of sexual harm as being the stranger in the dark alley. Mm -hmm. And that's not always how it, how it happens. It's rarely how it happens. And it also constructs an idea about an ideal victim that is quite harmful as well. So even in those those sort of you know extreme limit cases of like the the rapist in the dark alley, um, the harms it on uh, survivors occur in other ways as well because they have to then conform to a particular kind of femininity. They have to be a particular kind of victim that can be harmful as well. And one of the other reasons it's the wrong question is because if you start from the harms of sexual violence, it's not going, well, look at this harm this one individual person has caused caused the other. It's embedded in those real structural problems mm. in society. Um, and so and the criminal justice system is reproducing the harms of sexual violence and reproduces the structures which enable it. And the cultures within the system, we know the number of police officers that um, abuse witnesses and victims in the criminal justice system and, and abuse their, you know, the power they have within that. And in those people who you know, have been sentenced and punished, the amount of sexual violence and abuse that takes place within the prison itself. So if we want to end sexual violence, you know, how can you turn to, to this system that does all of this sexual harm? That is so important that, that, you know, the sexual violence that goes on in prisons is just not talked about or it's it's sort of joked about mm. or it is thought of as deserved. Yeah. And yeah. and that is just, you know, yeah. Yeah. One of the things I'm just thinking about as you guys are talking is um so it's a partial um provocation on limit cases and perhaps what the possibility of limit cases in relation to the police. So when people that are involved in the police are accused of perpetuating harm, whether that is sexual violence or murder, the the police response is that to use the language of limit cases, that they are just bad eggs. But as we all know in this room, the police, is, the police or the criminal justice system is one that obviously feeds, nourishes, grows these kinds of quote unquote um bad apples. So did I say bad apples before? Eggs. eggs, bad eggs. Is it bad apples or bad eggs? Bad apples. Is it bad apples? Did I say eggs? That is classic. That is classic dyspraxic Chantel. Oh my god, keep that in. That is so classic. That is so classic. Bad eggs. The eggs are on bad egg. Bad egg, bad apple. So What's really interesting is we're kind of talking here about how annoying and ridiculous the limit cases are when trying to imagine futures that are an abolitionist future. But when the police inevitably come out and the government come out and defend the bad apples, they use they kind of use the language that we're trying to use here. How can we get better at both speaking back to this, but also getting more people to understand that the police, that the fact that there are policemen that will commit murder, abuse, and harassment is an inevitability. Mm. Is that not 
partly about understanding what the police are for. Yeah. You know, and understanding the history of the police and the fact that are we going with apples or eggs? <laughs> it's it's interesting though, isn't it? That yes, they're able to that they, they, can the say, they can use li- they can use the language uh, that goes beyond the limit. No. They can use the language of a of um of the individual. Of the individual. Yeah. Um to push back against us saying that it's structural. Yes. It's, you can point to how these we find out about these cases. How do we find find out this individual, suppose in police officer, has mm. you know murdered a woman? Well, you don't find it out by the colleagues and the people within the institution pointing it out and holding them accountable and responsible. Exactly. You find it out because they've got caught in another way, exactly. and kind of I think that's how you you throw it back. Yeah, tell them that's a good yeah. one. That is a really good one. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I think also there's um, that co-optation that happens sometimes as well that, you know, the police will then, you know, talk about structural change and then they'll talk about, you know, overhauling the institutions and they'll talk about, you know, like um, opening up to conversations with, you know, other groups and with activists. And, you know, sometimes those activists will sort of be like, okay, well, maybe we'll try this and it just doesn't work. But I think that happens in a lot of other social justice arenas, whether it's climate change, that's sort of, you know, the language of climate change mm-hmm. co-opted by like Shell or, you know, a- around around race where the language of EDI is kind of co-opted mm-hmm. to put a patina of, of you know, of... Um, Racial uplift for a yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Like to laughs> an institution, and you can't reform yeah. these institutions, can you? You can't make an omelet with rotten eggs. Not, thank <laughs> you. <laughs> Let's round up the episode with a oh, bit of hope. Yeah. So, can we talk about some activities that the um, collective are going to be engaging in? The collective being abolition, feminism for ending sexual violence here at the Newcastle University. Uh, well, we are going to have a series of talks, um, and we're going to bring in uh, speakers from different countries, different areas around the world, from Latin America. We're going to sort of go and do a kind of hopping around um, to look at how abolition is being addressed and is being acted on and is being manifested um, amongst different groups, um, hopefully to share skills and ideas. Um, and histories uh, to avoid kind of, you know, trying to um, redo what's already been done. That's one thing that there's a lot of people doing work in this area, and we want to make sure that we're just not going in and trying to do things that have already been addressed. Uh, So, and we want to learn from different communities. So I think, you know, having our first a group of activists, well, they're academics that are in the UK, but they're going to speak on experiences in Latin America specifically. And, and so that's sort of our first initiative. And they're going to bring in also activist groups, yes. feminist groups from, it's Mexico, Chile and Ecuador, um, the three countries we'll be focusing on. And, and actually, to give you some hope, one of the questions for the workshops is, is basically, how do you win? Because Latin American feminists have won loads of games, haven't they? They absolutely kick ass, you know, so learning from them about how do you win um, is one of the things we're really keen to do. Like international solidarity here, guys. Proper, proper. And a little bit more behind the scenes, we wanted to get the collective more operating as a collective because mm-hmm. we've had to take the leadership a bit in setting it up um, and setting up our, you know, our first event, which we had 
you know people coming to talk about Team's wonderful book and you know that was that was fantastic but so we've got an inaugural meeting next week of the collective and really getting lots of people together to talk about you know what do they want out of this and what are we all wanting to to do moving forward and there's there's lots of people who've got a wealth of knowledge and experience around abolition um, and also people who are you know newer to it like Alison and I so we want people to be able to, to learn about it and so yeah hopefully we'll be getting some even better um, and more events and activities in the future that's brilliant and sort of you're you're speaking to the Spiring Society listenership now which I'm sure will have lots of people that are interested in getting involved how do people get involved is there a link that I can put in the episode notes yes yeah okay if you're interested in joining the collective great so I'll put the link in the episode notes but yeah that was brilliant Thank you very much you. for having us. Oh, it's been so good and so inspiring. We're in such an urgent political moment, so it does feel it does feel slightly hopeless. But conversations like this, dialogical knowledge production, thinking together, is really important. That's what we need to keep doing. Listeners, thank you so much for staying with us for this three-week alternative to Women's Hour takeover. Nikki, Tina, Alison, thank you so much for hosting us at Newcastle University. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, listeners, we'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 